meet me at the museum with Alan and Daniel. We'll talk about the Cardinals all night long. Everyone come gather round, listen to your favorite sound. We'll talk about the Cardinals all night long. We'll talk the games and all the rest about the team that we love best. We'll talk about the Cardinals all night long. Anyway, welcome you to another edition of Meet Me at Mutual. I'm your host, Daniel Shoptoss, C70 at the bat at C70 on Twitter. With me, as always, Alan Medlock from Red Dirt, Red Bird, and A Medlock1 on Twitter. And this week, we continue our nice, strong run of guests by having Brian Walton on from uh, thecardinalnation.com, um, B underscore Walton on Twitter. Brian, thanks for joining us tonight. My pleasure. Uh, you know, you and I were talking at, at some point in time that we've known each other i put that in air quotes for a long period of time interacting on various things and we've never actually had a chance to to sit and talk so i'm glad to to finally rectify that situation yeah i would have to say it's not quite 20 years but it's over 15 i'm sure uh i yeah. started you know i started uh with ray malur at the time who was my partner probably hmm. 2005 or so maybe earlier and then uh, he decided to retire about 2008 which is when i took over the cardinal nation full-time but I know you were already blogging by then uh, for, for multiple years. Yeah, I do remember, right? I'd, I'd forgotten that it's a name I hadn't thought about in a while, but uh, that's a, a blast from the past. So let's let's get into that then. How did you get started in what you're doing now? Well, I first, I first I was a fantasy baseball writer. I got into writing that way because I, I began playing fantasy baseball as a way to compete with my brother-in-law, who's about – uh, 15 years younger and weighs about 300 pounds or uh, sorry, about 30 pounds more and is about three inches taller than me. So anything athletic, I couldn't beat him in, but I, I realized I could maybe outbrain him in fantasy sports. So I got started there and I, uh, found that I always had opinions about things other people wrote. And so I would never hesitate to write them and give them my opinions. And usually that would open up a door then for me to have my own platform. And that sort of migrated because I'd always followed the Cardinals since I was a child. I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, which is, of course, Bob Gibson country and College World Series country. And when I was younger, the Royals hadn't even existed yet. So, you know, we were still there. The local radio station played Cardinals games because uh, we didn't get KMOX there because there was another station in that same frequency. But anyway, I listened to Cardinals games. And, and of course, Bob Gibson was a local hero. So it, it sort of became natural. Uh, one of the media relations people, uh, from the Cardinals was a neighbor of a friend of mine from the fantasy baseball community. And that sort of helped me open the door, you know, when things were much easier, much different way, way pre nine 11. But yeah. And so that, that way I sort of started to get a leg in more in the traditional writing side of the house and, uh, joining Ray Malur really helped as well. And we were associated with Fox sports. And so we had, we were doing things with Fox Midwest and that led us to get credentials. And we realized that our niche you know, we're not going to compete directly with the resources of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch or of MLB.com or now The mm -hmm. Athletic. You know, they just have more people and more money. And, and how do you come up with a unique voice? Well, for us, it was, we figured out, was the minor leagues. And it was stitching the minor leagues from end to end. Because even in those days, the local papers may have had a presence, but they covered the Springfield Cardinals. And they covered the players on the Springfield Cardinals. Mm -hmm. And so when a player joined them, they 
immediately introduced themselves to them. And as soon as the players promoted out, they lost track of them. And that isn't the way fans are, right? Cardinals fans are following these players from the day they were drafted or even before they were drafted until they reach the majors and beyond. So that's where the Cardinal Nation fits. We really stitch together the whole minor league system from beginning to end. And um, that's a niche that certainly isn't as broad as the, if we just covered the major league team only. But the people who do care about the minor leagues care about it very, very much and are thirsting for information. And that's that's a need that we provide. Brian, I'm in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is a huge minor league community. Uh, you, we had the Cardinals AAA affiliate here for many years that before it had sold off and moved to n- numerous locations and brought in the Rangers and then the Rockies. Uh, at one point, the only way that we could really get any minor league coverage that was outside of the local affiliate of what we would hear in the Tulsa paper or whatnot was – Baseball America, which was kind of hard to come by at the time subscription-wise. You'd have to buy it at you know, one of the local sundries. Or whenever USA Baseball did their, their Baseball Weekly. How exactly. hard was it to locate and do a lot of work on the, uh, on the minor league side without? Or did you have to visit a lot of these local affiliates? Oh, I enjoyed it. But what I learned very quickly was that I couldn't be everywhere all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of the fundamental brainstorms that I had, I don't know, this is probably 12, 15 years ago, was to get local writers in each of the affiliate cities who could then attend the local games. And so I couldn't afford to pay, you know, I wasn't making any money. And so I established relationships with the journalism schools at the various universities in the town. So for Mm. State College, Penn State University and Peoria, Bradley University, et cetera. And would typically get a, a journalism student who was a junior, a senior to be, and and you know had some experience but wanted to gain more experience. Would get them credentialed, would show them the ropes, what to do, and they would be the local reporter, and uh, they would provide a report on the team each week. And I would give them their uh, internship evaluation for college credit, and would be a backer for them when they went out in the job market. So that allowed me to increase my coverage and reach. And I, I still you know go out to the minor league cities, but I might hit them once or twice a summer rather than you know, what I was trying to do before, which was just an, an incredibly hard travel schedule and wasn't really practical. No. In in this span, I guess, then you have seen interest in the minor leagues just kind of blossom, hasn't it? And in, in part because of you, but in, in you know, we see it in, in nationally as well uh, with the way that prospects are valued and stuff. What are the biggest changes that you've seen over that, that pan, span? Well, you know, I think the the availability of information, you know, before mm-hmm. I had a, I had a big clunky radar gun and it was, and I'm carrying my 35 millimeter camera and my monopod and my pad and my, you know, and I'm trying to stay out of the sun. And, you know, so now, you know, we've got radar detectors that are smaller than a cell phone. Um, the, a lot of the information is re- right there, you know, readily available. You've got information on pitch pitches and spin rates. And, you know, there's just so much out there even for the media to, to see and to try to coalesce and report, which ultimately is, you know, like for pitchers, what are their best offerings and, you know, what velocities and, you know, I'm still just getting into things like spin rates and, and uh, you know, that in launch angles, that's still kind of new to me, but people thirst for the information that they can use to help them try to do their own projections of which players are going to make it and, and not going to make it. It's always, you know, kind of a fun thing to, 
look at the race and try to decide, okay, you know, who do we, of these guys, you know, do we agree with the experts or do we not? A, like a guy like Jack Flaherty, when he was in high A, he had a year that was only so-so and baseball America took him out of their top 10 in the Cardinal system. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, you look at it now and you say, well, what were they thinking? But they had done some evaluation and decided that, you know, maybe he wasn't going to, you know, be the level of guy that they thought they were going to be. Now, there are also plenty of cases where, you know, people identified players who, you know, didn't look like they were going to be that good, but turned out to be. So I don't, you know, I'm not throwing stones at anybody. It's, it's an inexact science. And so, you know, there's never a right or wrong. It's just in different informed opinions, looking at things from different ways. Yeah. And I mean, you get to see these guys in the Cardinals system a lot more than the national people do, right? They're keeping track of everybody and you're, you can have a more singular focus. I have so much respect for the national guys. I mean, I admit it. I, I don't, my brain's not big enough to hold information on 1,200 or, or 2,000, 3,000 prospects. I mean, the Cardinals at any point in time, including the 40-man roster have, and the number right now is about 260, 260 players under contract. And that is, if I can keep track of those, I feel like I'm doing really good. Yeah. I have a very good friend who worked for uh, Baseball HQ for some time, who's now a professional scout for the Cardinals named Derek McCamey. And Derek... Mm-hmm is one of these guys with a photographic memory. And, you know, you can bring up a minor league player from the Toronto Blue Jays system from 10 years ago, and he can tell you his mother's, you know, maiden name. <laughs> I, 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 just, I just marvel at people who have the brain power to do that. I'm not that good. <laughs> no, it takes, a, it takes a talent for sure. Um, are there prospects that you have – felt like you found before maybe some others and are there prospects that you thought would do more than they did oh sure i mean but you know find more than others it's always interesting because the casual fans right they discover guys maybe double a or triple a right mm-hmm. oh yeah maybe this dylan carlson guy yeah maybe, you know he really had a great year at double a of course you know a lot of folks knew and, and you know he's a first round pick so maybe that's not a, a good choice but maybe a trevor rosenthal right he was a 21st rounder or somebody like that that, you know, people didn't see, but you, you know, you watch him light up the radar gun, you watch him throw off speed pitches and make hitters look silly. I'll never forget the day I was on the backfields at Cardinals were playing the Marlins. This is, I don't know, four, four springs ago, maybe. And uh, this little guy, you know, not big guy, Jordan Hicks is there, starts throwing. And there were half a dozen guys around the screen. And all of a sudden word started buzzing around. He's throwing triple digits, throwing a hundred, throwing a hundred. And then, all, then the later photo I took is like of 100 people all <laughs> huddled around there watching Jordan Hicks throw this fastball that nobody ever heard of him, nobody ever knew it. It's like, holy smokes, this guy's got something here. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I think back, to, I'm, I'm going to throw a name at you from a long period, a long way back. But when I started getting on to the forums and things of that nature, though, baseball boards and fan home and stuff like that, I remember the hype around Derek Barton, who of course went in the Mark Mulder deal. Sure. And he made it to the big leagues, but it never panned out. Is it, do you remember a lot about Barton? I just, you know, potential power hitting guy, right? Catcher. But I mean, you know, the, the, the Cardinals have had this history of catchers, you know, through the Molina years that you thought were, you know, were going to be something and they just never came to pass. And the Cardinals were really good um, at, you know, unloading these guys before they, were discovered, you know, that they weren't really as good as they thought they were. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, Derek, at the time, everybody panned the trade and, you know, it turned out to be okay for the Cardinals. But, 
the Cardinals have had, you know, had some pretty good success trading prospects for develop, you know, developed major leaguers. And, you know, everybody's really upset about Randy Rosarena and I get it, but I mean, think back, try to think back the last time they traded somebody who was that much of an impact player for another team later. I mean, they just aren't out there. Yeah. You know, you got guys like Marco Gonzalez who are okay, but Marco Gonzalez isn't an MLB all-star, right? He's not going to be the most valuable player in the, in the championship series. So I think the Cardinals not only do a good job of developing, but overall they've done a pretty good job of, of trading guys that we're never going to make it. You know, people for every Randy Rosarena, right? There's 10 Adolis Garcia's. Adolis mm-hmm. Garcia was a guy that we ranked as a better prospect than Randy Rosarena as recently as two years ago. And Adolis Garcia got sold for cash. And when's the last time you heard his name? You know, he got a couple of bats for Texas and he's just going to fade away. Just like, uh, got Rede Rodriguez. I mean, there's all these guys that they, that the Cardinals have that everybody thought were going to be great. And, you know, it turned out they weren't. Yeah. I think I saw that, uh, Garcia had been uh, DFA'd by Texas as well. So you're right. Just, and, uh, and, nobody, and nobody even claimed him. Yeah. And, and again, um, he's, a, he's a guy that me and lots of other people who will follow the system thought was, a, had better potential than a Rosarena. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's, you know, the Rosarena, stands out and maybe just because it's been so long that the Cardinals have had that kind of player to go somewhere else and develop. But then you do have Gonzalez, you have Luke Voigt, you have a Rosarena kind of back, bam, bam, bam. It gets people wondering if, if the evaluation of these prospects is uh, in the front office is a little bit skewed now. Well, there's, there's no doubt. I mean, when John Mozalock and I was on the call and my jaw dropped, they probably, if you heard of the recording, you would have heard the thump when my jaw hit the table. When Mozalock <laughs> said, when he said, Hey, that's on me. You know, we missed it. Mm-hmm. We missed on a Rosarena. We're going to go back and reevaluate. And no, it wasn't in response to a question from the media. He wanted to get that right out up front in that call. So, you know, the impact of that was definitely felt on Clark Street in St. Louis. And, you know, if they learn from it, great. I think the void, I don't think anybody saw what Luke, other than maybe, you know, Grandma June or whatever her name was. <laughs> I don't think anybody saw what he was going to be. I mean, he was a guy, you know, who had some power, but he was completely blocked at first base as a one player, you know, one position only kind of guy. And, you know, God bless him. He bloomed for the Yankees and, you know, but the Cardinals got Gallegos, who isn't a darn bad reliever right. either. So, yeah, that wasn't a great trade, but it wasn't also wasn't terrible. And, you know, and, and the Rosarena thing, you know, I, I think really think we have to make sure we wait until see what Matthew Libertor becomes, because right now, yeah, the Rays won the trade, but in five years, it may not be that way. Well, and I also think that, you know, baseball is littered with guys that had a great postseason and then never heard from again. And I don't know that Randy Rosarino is going to be that guy, but we have to see if he's going to develop more than, you know, just a, a good month or two. Baseball is a game of adjustments, right? And and mm-hmm. the word's going to get out on him, right? Everybody's going to have the video. They're going to figure out how to pitch to him. And so now it'll be back on Randy to see if he can adjust to how they pitch to get him out because, you know, he's not he's not going to be the next Mike Trout. Okay. He's a good baseball player, but there's a lot of good pitchers out there as well. A lot of smart guys and that they're going to figure out how to work him. So the jury's out. I mean, he had a tremendous 2020, no doubt about it, but 2020 was a bizarre year in so many ways. So, you know, let's see how he does in 2021. Let's see when Libertor gets up might be this year, uh, you know, and see what he becomes as well before we are too hard. Yeah. Now granted the 2020 Cardinals could have used a Rosarena's offense, but chances are, he wasn't going to play much when he was around. It was pretty clear in the pecking order. He wasn't, 
you know, he wasn't on the same sphere as O'Neill and, and Lane Thomas and the others. He, you know, he probably wasn't going to see the at-bats. So going to Tampa Bay may have been the thing he needed to set himself free. You know, going through some of the names of the outfielders we were talking about, I remember about 10 years ago whenever James Ramsey was coming through, and I remember them coming through Tulsa like he was the next big thing, you know, before he was he was moved. And uh, it kind of made me think when we were having this conversation, does your background in Omaha and the College World Series, did that kind of help build some minor league relationships, or is there any correlation there at all? I'm a huge college baseball fan as well, is why I ask. It was, I mean, it was obviously a wonderful place to live in a wonderful time. You know, we would get – we used to buy from like the Chamber of Commerce books of tickets and for all all the sessions for like you know, that'd be awesome twenty dollars or twenty five dollars <laughs> and just go to you know go to Rosenblatt Stadium and stay all day and all night yeah. and all the games it was it was just a wonderful time but I don't know it it sort of originally I think I was more skewed toward believing that college players were going to be more successful and prejudiced against high schoolers and still the odds are higher. But, you know, what we saw in a lot of players like a James Ramsey, Ramsey, for example, Scott Hurst, another guy who's on the roster right now, are guys as a, as a non-roster invitee in camp right now, uh, are, are college guys who maybe sort of peaked early and there isn't that much more ahead of them. You know, kind of what you see is what you get, and that's right. not good enough to reach the major leagues and, and be successful. So, you know, you see them gamble. The Cardinals have made some good gambles on high school guys. I mean, the top – the top – one, I'm just counting right now. Uh, the top prospect in the Cardinals system who was a college hitter. I'm still going down. I'm at number 20. I'm still looking. Oh, Luke and Baker, number 23. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Here's all the guys ahead of him who are either high school players or international players at the high school level. Carlson, Gorman, Herrera, Walker, Wynn, uh, uh, Fletcher, Torres, Nunez. All these guys, all these guys were either high school players or international players. So there's a higher risk on those players, but there's also a potential much greater reward. Well, and especially now, I mean, if you can get them up to the major leagues and, you know, if you get five or six years to develop a player, you know, if you're starting them at college level, of course, they don't probably take that long, but you still, you can get a guy maybe like a Carlson up a lot faster in age than you can a guy that's coming out of college. That's one of the reasons that 2020 was so damaging because those players all aged a year. Every player, every person, obviously, we all aged a year. Some of us may have aged two years. Who knows? But, but you know, we all aged a year last year. These players aged a year. They lost a year. The teams lost a year of control, or lost a year of development for most of them, although a handful got to go to alternate camp, not very many. And, you know, this year is going to be very interesting as these guys try to pick it up, and there's going to be pressure. A guy like uh, John Torres, for example, you know, top top ten prospect in some systems. He's number thirteen on our list. Uh, good young power hitting outfielder that they got from Cleveland in the in the trade for Oscar Mercado. And John Torres is still like twenty or twenty one years old, but he's never played successfully in full season ball. His last successful stop was Johnson City, and so he's a long, long way away from the majors. He's already been Rule Five eligible this last December, but he's so far away from the majors, nobody picked him. But you know, John Torres has got to either progress very quickly to earn a spot on the 40-man roster, but then he only has three more years before he has to make the major league. So the point is the clock the clock is really even more um, urgent for some of these players 
because of the lost season in 2020. Do you think the new CBA will address anything like that? Good question. Um, the CBA and, and what we're talking about here, of course, is the is the uh, the bargaining agreement between players and owners that governs how baseballs run for the next five year period. The minor leaguers are included, but not with any representation, because the Major League Baseball Players Association represents major league players, and the minor league players are not organized; they're not part of the union. So. Often what happens is decisions get made to help the major leaguers and they make compromises in areas that that don't benefit the minors. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's been a tough it's been a tough go for minor leaguers to get the things that the major leaguers enjoy, like decent salaries, decent working conditions. And some of that's changed just because of the the attention and focus that folks like us and many, many others have drawn on. The, the you know the plight of minor leaguers and how difficult it is for some of these young men to just you know find a place to live and and food to eat while they're trying to chase their dreams. So I don't I mean the things that will happen in the CBA will be maybe the major leaguers will get you know five years before free agency instead of six or they'll get four years of arbitration instead of three. But I don't think there'll be anything in the next agreement that will dramatically change things for minor leaguers. I'd be very surprised. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, you're right. And, and I think that's most likely the case. I just, I think about some of these players like Jack Flaherty, who are not too far away from have being in the minor leagues. And it feels like at least at times they've been a little bit more vocal about trying to help those guys out. Now, again, what kind of voice they have when it actually comes down to the brass tax is a different story. Well, you've got, yeah, it's whether you've got one, you know, one man making a stand versus the union. Uh, mm-hmm. For example, Adam Wainwright last year, when there was a period where the minor leaguers were not, didn't look like they were going to get salary during the stoppage, uh, Adam Wainwright donated like half a million dollars to help the Cardinals minor league players. And it, it got a little bit of attention, but not nearly what it deserved. And, you know, again, it was a person who's very giving and very, um, aware of what's going on around him in Wainwright, but there weren't, you know, like dozens of people who joined him, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. True. So again, 2020 was a, a, a rough year for everybody, but especially for people that are focused on the minor leagues. Um, how did that affect what you did during 2020? And I know you put out a publication at the beginning of the season. How were you able to do that for, you know, this 2021? Well, I would, um, yeah, multiple questions there. Good questions. Um, without minor league baseball, obviously it was more difficult. But one of the benefits was that the major league club conducted all their business via Zoom. Mm-hmm. Uh, the media were not allowed in the clubhouse. The media were not allowed in the field. So I was able to last year focus more on the major leagues than I ever had because I had access to participate in the media Zoom calls every day. And I still do now, right, from spring training. I just got, got off a call. Um, and so, you know, I sit on those, I sat on those calls and so kept up to date as much as we could because media was also not allowed in the alternate camp down in Springfield. So the only reports we had on the players down there were from the Cardinals. And of course, you know, when you ask a team to self-report, everybody's going to be above average, uh, <laughs> you know, so, and, and the guys are struggling, they don't talk about them. And so that's, you know, another reason, of course, for the, the value of independent media to, you know, present a more balanced view. And, you know, we don't hammer on prospects, but, you know, when a guy has a good day, we praise him. When he has a bad day, you know, we point out he went over four. That's that's right. the life. That's the real world. 
Uh, in terms of our business, it was my business. It was difficult because the prospect guide that we put out is a major source of revenue. And then the other source is subscriptions. And, you know, in a time when people, some people are struggling to make ends meet, to pay the rent, to put food on the table, a luxury to subscribe to a baseball site to read about a season that's not being played, you know, something, you know, folks could cut back on pretty easily. But to answer your question, our 2021 prospect guide is out. And I'm very fortunate that uh, Matt Thompson, who's a, uh, who's a very, very successful and knowledgeable prospect writer at the national level, but who happens to be uh, a Cardinals fan as well, uh, joined me this year. And at, at, uh, at his site, uh, I'm talking about Matt Thompson's site, uh, Prospects Live, they do in-depth evaluations of players across all, many, many systems. So Matt was able to bring to the table this year uh, in the Cardinal Nation rankings uh, his tool-by-tool tool ranking of every prospect that we covered, about 60 prospects in the guide. So, you know, uh, uh, you know, he uh, put a, on the 20 to 80 scouting scale, he, he ranked uh, Thompson's curveball versus Libertor slider, whatever it may be. So, and, and for every hitter, uh, you can look at the rating of Dylan Carlson's throwing arm versus Nolan Gorman's throwing arm. So that provided another, another level of detail and information about these prospects that we had never, we had never had before. So people are, are really enjoying the 2021 prospect guide because it uh, even takes them deeper on the prospects than we were able to even able to do, even though the part of the guide that normally would be, you know, involved in reporting on last season and all the quotes and all the wonderful things they did, all the all-stars and all that isn't there because of course there's no season. Was there any surprise in the announcement this week that uh, AAA would move back to May 4th? I was surprised that they waited. I think, I think they mm -hmm. were hoping they were hoping upon hope that somehow there would be some kind of breakthrough and the players could get vaccinated in time and the coaches. And when that was clear, that wasn't going to happen. They had to fall back. And really the decision isn't a big deal because the other minor league, the other, the double A and the two class A levels were already scheduled to start on May 4th anyway. And they do have to, you know, do this alternate camp thing for a month, but that's because triple A players typically fly commercial uh, and, you know, they didn't want them exposed to flying commercial, uh, you know, during this time before everybody can get vaccinated. So uh, I wasn't overly surprised and I don't, you know, I don't think it's a bad deal. I think, the one thing that bothered me about it was they talked about, well, we'll tack some games on at the end of the schedule. Well, they already tacked games on the end of the schedule. If you look at the schedules now, they run through September 19th. So maybe they could add another week and still stay in September, but you know they're not going to pick up that lost month. So I think I'm, my guess is the AAA schedule will fall back to the 120 games from 144 where it is now. The 120 games like they're doing at AA and single A. Mm. You know, when fall comes, school started. Uh, the weather's starting to change. Football is in full swing, both at the at the high school and college levels. And fans just, you know, they're not going to come to the ballpark. Yeah, I, I we talked, Alan and I talked about that last year when it was trying to decide whether the minor leagues would start late or whatever, that there, there's, those conflicts are, are there. Um, obviously, the big thing, and you kind of alluded to it a little bit there is the restructuring of the minor leagues under MLB's umbrella. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I've written about it extensively and, you know, I, I pride myself at being a reporter and an analyst. I'm not a scout per se. I mean, yeah, I can tell a pitch from another sometimes, but, but this one, I really, you know, had a, had a 
personal opinion that I tried to express, but I tried to explain why I felt that way. And because I spent 30 years in the corporate world, so I understand about uh, downsizing. I understand about managing to the bottom line, to shareholder value. And baseball is being run like a corporation. And God bless them, they're making billions of dollars. But when you make decisions, and, and, and what was driving this primarily was all this information explosion that's, that's available, all this data, teams feel like they can do a better job in predicting which players will become major leaguers someday. And the more, the more strength and conviction they have in their predictive powers, the more comfortable they are that they can get by with fewer players in the pipeline to see which ones are going to win the lottery. And it's expensive for, to run the minor leagues. And with the pressure that's coming from the outside to pay the players better, to provide better conditions, you know, better seating on buses, long, fewer bus trips, you know, better accommodations on the road, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That all costs money. And Major League Baseball realized that they can only put so much pressure on these minor league owners to step up and pay for this stuff, and they don't want to pay for it themselves. So the, the easy answer was we'll get rid of a couple layers of minor league baseball and have fewer prospects in our systems. And we'll still, you know, we have maybe we'll miss a few, but we'll still, you know, get 95% or whatever the number is. The fallacy of that, of course, is that 43 communities across the United States lost their access to minor league baseball. Yeah, maybe they'll have a college wood bat league, et cetera, but it's not the same. It won't, it, it won't provide the same value in building future baseball fans to a sport that's already losing mind share with the American people to other sports like football and basketball and soccer. So it's, 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 a, it's a business decision that I'm sure the balance sheet justifies, but it's one that I think will hurt the game, the game, the big capital G game for a long time. And for that, I'm very disappointed. I'm very sad for the, for the fans that lost their access. And I did a, I wrote a story about a year ago. Um, I'm very familiar with a number of people who are, who are in Springfield, Illinois, Springfield, Illinois, which was the home of the Cardinals AAA team after Tulsa, but in the early late seventies, early eighties, and Springfield, Illinois, went from Triple A baseball to Single A baseball to independent baseball to college wooden bat league, and there are principles. There was a the sports editor of the newspaper is still alive, still around. The deputy mayor at the time, when the Cardinals were debating with them about whether to build a new stadium, and basically I could chronicle. And of course, I talked to fans as well in the, who in the city. And you could just see by looking at the attendance numbers how the focus on baseball by the locals went down and down every time it dropped a level of classification in Springfield, uh, Illinois, to now they're just, they just have a summer you know, wood bat league team that you know, maybe 2,000 people come to all summer long. And it's just mm -hmm. tough. It's tough to see. Wow, that's crazy. I, uh, I have a pretty good relationship with the drillers here in the front office, and, and I actually asked the general manager just a week ago when I ran into him uh, how safe they felt during these decisions. Now, the, the, the Dodgers own the Oklahoma City affiliate now, so the Tulsa pipeline to Oklahoma City and into L.A., they felt pretty safe on that. But one thing he did bring up that, got, that, that kind of made me raise my eyebrows a little bit he said people within the industry, like the owners and the and management of a lot of these minor league teams, they were worried that they were being leveraged for good and bad against other cities that were owed a favor or whatnot. 
Did you see or hear any of that when they were choosing some of these organizations? Well, you know, you organizations, heard, some of these clubs. You hear, you definitely heard the rumors, and there were there was a congressional group that you know uh, became active. And gee, the one I remember, the one the one of the leaders was a congress uh, congressperson from uh, the Massachusetts, and the Lowell Club uh, magically moved from the supposed list of off <laughs> to back on. And, you know, it's not coincidence that kind of stuff happened. Yeah. And it did. They did. Major League Baseball played minor league baseball like a fiddle. They really – they used not only the – as you described, the competition against one another, but then also the fact that the pandemic was there and they didn't have a season. So these clubs – and by the way, the difference – one of the major fundamental business model differences between Major League Baseball and minor league baseball, Major League Baseball has the revenue from TV and media rights. And minor leagues are completely, totally dependent on ticket sales and concessions, right? And so, mm-hmm. and parking. So if they don't have fans in the stands, they have no business. And so all those teams in the same year that this downsizing is happening, they have no revenue coming in. So there was just this tremendous pressure to be one of the 120 teams chosen. Yeah, it's, this is, it will go as no surprise to anybody on here, but, but, uh, Whenever I talked to them, he said that it will take them five years at least to recover from this year. And if there's something were to happen in 21, he said they would have to look at maybe some really tough decisions. And that's from a team that's always in the top top one or two of Texas League attendance. So I bet it's really tough on some of these teams. I, I had a conversation with a with a general manager of a minor league team who told me, that he told his parent organization that if they had to, they would play games in an empty stadium because they valued the relationship with the big league club that much. So they were, you know, they were basically willing to lose money because they were trying to show their major league parent that they were worthy of, of staying married, so to speak. Wow. Because that parent could have said, hey, I don't want that city anymore. I want one that's closer. or I want this one with a shinier new ballpark or whatever it may be. And the minor league, the owners had zero leverage. In fact, they were being told, hey, you know, you're going to have to upgrade your facilities. And some of them, granted, I mean, the Cardinals used to have a team in Batavia, New York, and that ballpark was old in World War II. You know, and and it just wasn't a good setting. And the locals, you know, couldn't afford to invest in it. But most of the minor league facilities are pretty good, like State College, where the Cardinals were. That ballpark, uh, Medler Park at Lebrano Park, which is part of the Penn State University campus, is one of the nicest college baseball stadiums in the, in the country. And the State College Spikes didn't lose their affiliation because of their facility. They lost their affiliation because they're located in western Pennsylvania in the middle of nowhere, and, and Major League Baseball is trying to, you know, coalesce their, the locations of their teams. So, you know, a, a lot of this didn't even have to – I mean, some of it was just geography that, that couldn't be changed. But there was a lot of, you know, horse trading and stuff rumored to be, to be going on. Um, this last year. Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny that, that, you know, we're talking here the Cardinals and their minor league system when, you know, Branch Rickey would have never known what to do with just four teams. Uh, he needed 40. Um, a team, Johnson City is a team, of course, since I've been following it, have always been that connection to the Cardinals, one of those entry levels. Uh, obviously not there anymore. Any good Johnson City stories? Well, Johnson City had a, 
had a big berm, a big wall in right field that they finally just took down. But it was one of those. It wasn't quite as bad as Towles Hill in, in Houston, but it was one of those quirky ballparks where you really had to learn how to play right field because this hill and this, you know, this big wall was there. But you're right. Johnson City had been a Cardinals affiliate continuously since 1975, longer than any other location. And those folks and, – and, and they started – the Cardinals started their affiliation with Johnson City in the 1940s. I mean, so – these people, generations of Cardinals fans in Tennessee, you know, were now told, hey, your team is gone. And by the way, Johnson City had set a new attendance record in each of the last three seasons before they were shut down. They had invested in the ballpark, the community, they got, there was new leadership that was running the team and they had everybody energized and it was really going great. And then they got the rug pulled out from under them because again, they were located in the wrong place in the wrong league at the level that baseball decided they didn't need anymore. And there's another thing from the player development side that really concerns me in that those levels, those short season levels, um, rookie advanced level, which is Johnson City, and then short season Class A where State College was, those two levels were important for the players either at the lower end of the draft that year or of the younger players who were pushing out of the Gulf Coast League. Now there is going to be so such tremendous pressure on that Gulf Coast League team because they're not only getting the players from the International Academy, the best of them who come to the U.S. from the Dominican Republic, but they're also going to get the high school draft picks. And there's just going to be, and these rosters, are unless they've changed things, are going to be 35 players. And then from there, they're going to have to jump all the way up to Class A Palm Beach. And that's a, that's a huge step. So it just it feels like there's this, this funnel that is too small, and we're still kind of waiting to see. Now, one one thing they can do to, to alleviate that a little bit is to cut the draft down, and we already saw last year they did mm -hmm. that. This year, will the draft be 10 rounds or will it be 20? It certainly won't be 40 or 50 like it used to be. And, you know, it's just it – just, it just, it, there's going to be some interesting challenges in player development where they're going to put all these guys. Yeah, I think and it's going to take uh, fans, and, and I'm sure you as in writing it, trying to – adjust the mindset of where these guys are and what that means. It's a little bit different to be at, you know, low A than it used to be, I would assume, since there's nothing in between below it. That's right. And, you know, pretty much now every, I would think every college player drafted, they're going to have to shoehorn them into onto the A roster after the draft. And then by the way, the draft's been moved back a month from June to middle July. It's going to be a part of all-star weekend which is around the, I think the 8th through the 11th of July, if my memory serves me correctly. So those players will get you know pushed into class A. And if the rosters are full, that means some number of other guys are going to get pushed out. And so I predict we're going to see more releases during the season and guys getting maybe where they got two, maybe they got three years before to prove themselves. Maybe they're only going to get two years until they're told, sorry, you know, we're moving on. Yeah. And that's, that's tough just for those slow developing guys that could have eventually become something, but just, just kind of run out of runway. Well, and yeah, I mean, let's say take Tommy Pham, right? I think Tommy Pham holds a record. I think he was on our top prospect list like seven or eight years in a row. Yeah. And he was a classic guy. He was eligible for minor league free agency. Um, after, you know, after his, his sixth minor league season, he stayed with the Cardinals two years more. Uh, John Vooch, who was in charge of player development that at that time, you know, convince Tommy, hey, you know, the organization still cares about you. We want you to stay. And so I think Tommy Pham stayed, you know, in, in the organization like eight years before he reached the major leagues. Well, there's no way 
a guy like Tommy Pham would would have gotten cut in the new world. There's just no mm-hmm. doubt about it. Yeah. Well, how much of the uh, the shortening of the draft is the the want that Manfred may have that he wants to see that as a made for TV event? I think it's more. I think it's more. He wants to pass the develop. He and the teams, and again, Rob Manfred may be the architect, but he's not doing anything that the other thirty teams, that the thirty teams don't want to. Sure, do. sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, what I believe is that baseball is going to is trying to push more of the development cost of minor leaguers down to the amateur levels, and that, and in one level, that makes sense, right? You see NBA and you see the NFL players go right from the college campuses to the big time in baseball that isn't the case so i get what they're doing but there's such pressure on college athletes 11.7 scholarships that they each school's got to you know parcel out over 25 or 30 or 40 kids and there's just it's just going to put so much more pressure on the colleges i think um you know i whether one event like the draft is a bigger tv deal i don't think matters as much in the big picture i think it's about trying to figure out ways to to get others to pay more of the development cost of players. Um, When you look at this coming up season, you know, we know most fans know the big names, you know, the Gorman, the Levitors, things like that. Is there somebody maybe a little bit more under the radar that you're interested in watching this season? Well, I think the guy that comes to mind for me now, you know, he, maybe he's not, maybe he's, uh, you know, known to a lot of people. He was the, pitcher of the year in the Cardinals minor league system in 2019, but he's a guy who we didn't hear anything or see anything about last year. He didn't get called up to St. Louis when the Oviedo's and the Elliges uh, and the Whitley's of the world did. And I'm talking about a right-hander named Angel Rondon. His first name looks like Angel. Um, and he's a right-handed pitcher. He got put on the 50, uh, 40-man roster a year ago. He's, uh, he's only 23 years old. And of all the pitchers in the Cardinals system, Angel Rondon has the, the highest number of above-average pitches. He has a, a grade 55 fastball, a grade 55 curveball, a grade 55 changeup, as well as above-average control. So you're talking about a young man that has three above-average pitches and can control his pitches for strikes. And Rondon, I think, is a guy that um, is not – I mean, he's ranked number 10 in the system on our rankings, but he's a guy that's that's not – uh, very well known, and unfortunately, uh, Friday night's game, you know, wasn't shown on TV. But Ron Don't came in after John Gant threw uh, one and a third scoreless, hitless innings and struck out two. So he's a guy. I think Angel Rondon is a guy that is going to maybe make his major league debut this year, and certainly not nearly as celebrated as the Thompsons and, and Libertors. Yeah, and that's. I was listening to a different podcast talking about the the number of debuts will be, of course, a lot less this year. We're gonna, but it would seem to be that you're probably gonna see important people make debuts like Rondon instead of just the the Chris Mats or or people that just have to fill a spot. That's right. They had so much pressure last year on just having healthy bodies to pitch. So you know, we saw guys like Roel Ramirez and Jesus Cruz and. Elledge and guys pitched before they were really ready for the majors, but they had to have somebody to come in. And, and an Oviedo was a guy who, you know, I knew for years. I mean, just looking at the guy, 6'6", six, six, built like a brick house, and, you know, could throw, could spin the ball pretty well, too. I just knew he just had the look of a future major leaguer, but he hadn't pitched a game at AAA, and he came up and made five pretty good starts for the Cardinals under trying circumstances. Now, he Oviedo probably won't make the major league club out of camp, 
but I guarantee you he's going to be right at the top of the AAA rotation. And, you know, when they need a starter, you know, depending on how it shakes out, Ponce de Leon is kind of the sixth starter right now, maybe, unless, you know, Carlos explodes or something. But um, but Oviedo is going to be a guy that's, you know, we're going to see making starts for St. Louis this year, no doubt. And then the Rondones are the next step because I think, you know, Thompson and Libertor are going to need some more time. I think I'd be very surprised to see those guys in the first half. And a lot's going to depend on, uh, on uh, you know, on how they how they pitch in their first experience potentially at AAA. Do you expect Rondon to be in Memphis uh, from the start? Yeah, I, I do. I do. Now, you know, that's, that brings up another interesting point, and that is that the way – until this announcement that you mentioned before about the AAA season being delayed, the, the AAA roster to open the season when it was going to start on April 6th, that team was going to be made up of guys who are already in camp because the AA and single-A guys are still at home right now. So the Thompsons and Libertors and Ron Dones and uh, Nolan Gormans, they were all going to start the season in AAA because they're the guys who are ready to play right now. And they would have gotten a month to show what they could do at AAA before wow. the AA season started. And either they showed they belonged or they would go back down. Now that's not going to happen. This alternate camp's going to happen. And by definition, alternate camp is at most two dozen players. You don't have a critical mass to play games. So what I'm hearing is that the Cardinals may take some of these guys, the high-profile guys, and leave them in Jupiter because at least when the double-A and single-A guys come in, there's enough critical mass that they can play real games. Maybe they can play a few against the Marlins as well, whereas in the alternate camp, basically it's Cardinals on Cardinals, and you don't even have enough guys to have a full outfield or a full infield. you got coaches playing in the field. So it, it's going to delay – the way it was gonna, going to be, that AAA start early was going to give some of these players a jump start in their development to see what they could do at the highest level of competition that may not happen now. Alan, do you have any more minor league questions? Because I've got some stuff I want to ask Brian before we wrap it up. But I want to. Yeah, I, I have. I have that. one. And it is there any chance we see Delvin Perez in Springfield? Well, I think we need to see Delvin Perez back in Peoria, which is now High A. And we need to see Delvin Perez figure out how to do more than slap singles. I mean, we've seen, you know, just in the few TV games that, that have been on so far, he's a superior defender. Tremendous arm, tremendous range, can run like the wind, tall and lanky. Um, but he just can't hit worth a darn. And until until he can show some promise with the bat, and I'm not talking about hitting home runs, but, I mean, it's kind of like Ozzie Smith, right, when Ozzie Smith came up. Mm -hmm. And he fortunately was so good defensively that, they could wait until he had time in the major leagues to turn on the light. I don't think Delvin Perez is going to get that much window. So he needs to go into high A, do well. The good news is he can skip Palm Beach, which is a tough place to hit. But, you know, I think I think you could see Delvin Perez in Springfield if for no other reason they've got to move him along quickly to find out if he's going to make it or not as a Cardinal. Um, for him, this is going to be a really important year. But I said that last year too, and unfortunately because of numbers – Delvin Perez was not included in the alternate camp, so he did not get that year of development uh, that would have been so ideal for him. Well, along with your minor league coverage and, of course, major league coverage, you were also part of what I believe is called the Red Ribbon Committee, which is involved with the Cardinals Hall of Fame balloting and uh, nominees and all the fun stuff that goes with that. 
I have often wanted to be a fly on the wall of such a place. So can you tell us one, just how that all works on a normal year? I assume you probably didn't do it the same way this year, but in a normal year, is it a, is it a confab or, or what? Yeah, there, there's a, a committee of individuals. Uh, many of them have snow on the roof like myself, um, <laughs> but uh, of, you know, the writers, you know, the, the typical people that are leaders in the baseball community, St. Liz, the Bernie Miklas and, you know, those types of characters and Cusimanos and, of course, of course, Rick Hummel uh, well, yeah. and, and Gould and, you know, every, you know everybody, you, you know, you think of in baseball. But then, you know, the, the people who are the real stars, who have the real perspective in the rooms are the, the Whitey Herzogs and Tony LaRusses and Joe Torres and, unfortunately, no longer Red Chandies and, and you know, the, the stories that they would tell and the insight that they would have about these players, you know, I would, you know, the first couple of years, and we started in 2014, and I was like pinching myself thinking, okay, I'm sitting around the table with these legends, these these guys who didn't report on it, they lived it every day, and that my vote was equal to theirs somehow just didn't seem right. But yet, you know, a lot of us then bring in the statistical side as well, and it, it you know, really, really results in some very interesting discussion about players not only on the field what they accomplished but also what they were like as teammates and and members of the community and that all came into play um, the committee selects a uh, a player from the prior era the vet what they call the veterans era which are uh, uh, 40 years ago and back and then we vote on the modern era players which are the newer players that get on the fan ballot so this year we did not meet the players who they, the Cardinals decided, okay, we're not going to do a veterans era. We're not going to have a, a, a team selection of a non-player type, you know, the Mike Shannons and, and mm. George Kissel's type. We're just going to bring back the modern era nominees that didn't make it last year, the five, and select one of those this year. But I think that's fitting because last year's winners, Tom Herr, John Tudor, Bill White, were not able to be enshrined. They couldn't have the ceremony because there was, of course, nobody in the ballpark. So there'll still be four players inducted uh, in August when the uh, when the ceremony occurs, uh, but just one of them will be newly selected this year. And by the way, fans can go you know, vote uh, cardinals.com slash HOF for the choice among the five this year, which is Steve Carlton, Keith Hernandez, Matt Morris, Edgar Renneria, and uh, uh, oh, Lee Smith, Lee Smith. Yeah, I is that I, I know you're just kind of you may not be able to talk about it or may not even know. Do you think that's going to be the case going forward? I mean, they they're selecting one just this year because of like you said the COVID and and all that. But there is that idea that maybe they're getting it's getting, becoming a very big haul very quickly. Do you think that they'll kind of, you know, tone that down as they've got this now as a precedent? I hope so. I hope that we'll see one modern era player year. And yeah, granted, down the road, you know, eventually after they've been retired for five years, and you'll see the, you know, the Alberts and the Yachties and the Wainwrights who will be no brainers. But yeah, I think I think the guys, pretty much the the guys that are deserving, have already been selected. And so, picking two modern era players, I hope they don't go back to. And I've told Bill DeWitt that. Bill DeWitt the third is very well. Bill DeWitt, you know, that's the other interesting thing. By the way, let me just digress for a minute. I've been in many, many executive sessions over my lifetime. And generally speaking, the senior executive comes in at the beginning of the meeting, kicks it off, tells you the ground rules, they go away, and maybe they come back at the end of the day and see what the results were. 
That's not what happens in the Cardinals Hall of Fame. <laughs> Bill DeWitt Jr. and Bill DeWitt III are there, and they participate fully in the meeting. And I'll tell you, Bill DeWitt Jr. knows more about baseball and Cardinals history. I mean, he lived it, right? I oh, mean, yeah. he, they they know as much as anybody in the room, and they are they're not just owners. They are ba- they are truly baseball fans, and they're very knowledgeable. And I, you know, it's great to be able to talk with them in a in a in an environment like that that's, that's semi informal. You know, at the breaks and and whatever. And one of the things I said to Bill DeWitt the third is, "Hey, I, you know, I my personal opinion is it's about time to ratchet down the you know the modern era to one player. The other the other thing that I'm carrying is that they need to recognize the 1882 to 1891 teams that were prior to the National League but were a part of the Cardinals lineage. The team needs to re- fully recognize those years, those championships, those players because there's guys like Chris Vondera, who was the owner, Charlie Comiskey, who was the best player on the team, who I think should be in the Cardinals Hall of Fame as well. But right now they're kind of not really but sort of part of the team history. Now, if you go to the museum, if you go to the Cardinals Hall of Fame Museum, which is an excellent I recommend it to anybody who goes to St. Louis for games this year to go make sure to go to the museum. Those, those years are very well recognized and they're, they're very well represented in the collections. But if you go to the Cardinals.com and look at team history, you know, it, those, those years don't count. It starts at 1892. And that's a decision that was made across major league baseball. It also affects the, the pirates and the reds. And I think it's the Dodgers maybe were the other teams that were also active in that era. Yeah. Yeah. That is interesting. Yeah. That American association, it's, of course, you know, back there, it's, that's that quasi gray area somewhat, but you're right. They do trace their lineage through there and they could easily recognize that. Um, well, and I, I probed in the past, if you go to stat sites, pardon me for interrupting, but if you go to baseballreference.com or, or retro sheet, or, I mean, they all recognize those players' stats and their records as major leaguers. Um, yeah. It's just that for whatever reason, baseball, you know, didn't decide, didn't feel that that team, those leagues and that team were, were world champions. Well, they had, you know, they had a variation of the world series. Yeah. It was a different number of games sometimes. And sometimes there were ties and things, but I mean, it was still major league baseball and it's just, you know, it's unfortunate that, uh, you know, the great history of the game is not well understood or, or appreciated by all that many. Well, if they ever need an extra uh, hand on the committee, um, I, I know where they can find somebody. So I, I don't uh, think that's the first time that you have made your, uh, your wishes. Your <laughs> And in 20 years from now, maybe it'll happen. So uh, if I need to, I can dye the hair, the little hair that I have left white, if that makes me fit in a little bit better. So um, uh, Brian, it's been a lot of fun talking with you tonight. Um, Tell us right before we go, let's talk a little bit just right there about the website and what people can find there. Okay. The cardinalnation.com. Make sure you have the the at the beginning. Otherwise you get to a a site that sells cheap t-shirts and, (laughs) <laughs> they're, not, they're not really very good t-shirts, sorry. Um, so um, we have a mix of free and fee-based articles. There's a, there's a subscription cost uh, for the site to get the really good stuff. There's We report. We also have insight. Again, the, I said our primary focus is in minor leagues. We have uh, detail on top prospects that are rolled out through uh, the winter. We have new content every day of the year about the Cardinals and the minor leagues. Um, the Cardinal Nation Prospect Guide for 2021 is out. It uh, is available in either PDF form or printed book form. It's 259 pages. Uh, we review last season uh, who was assigned to which camps, the alternate camps, uh, the major league camps, et cetera, which players made their major league debut. Then we go into uh, all kinds of detail on the new top 50 Cardinal Nation Prospect list. Where did they come from? What are their ages? Where were they sourced from? 
uh, who's going to be eligible for Rule 5. Uh, and then, I, as I mentioned, the best pitches and, and tools for each prospect. Then we go into detail rankings on uh, 50 prospects plus about eight more. I share my deep sleeper pick for the year. Um, and then uh, there's a whole section on history. So all the prospect lists back in time, the Kissel winners, the organization winners, the Rule 5 results, the draft results uh, going back over time. A, a lot of information that, frankly, you can't find one place anywhere else, but I'm a man of spreadsheets and records and a lot of this content, um, you know, we deliver in different forms. So to put it in one place uh, is something that I started doing about four years ago and I really have a lot of fun doing it each winter. Yeah, it, it looks like, I mean, I haven't ever gotten one and I need to because I'm slacking, but just from looking at the pictures on the website, it looks like it is a, definitely a treasure trove that you could use all year long um, while you're keeping a track of these guys going through the, the system. So uh, it's amazing work that you're doing there. Yeah, thank you. It's it's a labor of love. I'm I'm retired from the business world, and so I have a pension that I can live on because I I don't I don't make enough money. I could pay the bills on baseball. I sink it back into the business and uh, and you know try to make enough to cover my travels if I'm lucky. But you know I, I really enjoy Cardinals baseball. I enjoy the minor leagues, and I think it shows in in our work. All right. Well. We will wrap it up right there for this week. Um, Alan, I'll be back with you next week. We'll talk a little bit more about what's been going on in spring training. And uh, we'll have um, Ben Ceridi with us next week so he can talk about his uh, projections for the Major League Club. So until then, for Alan, I'm Daniel. Good night. Good night. <laughs>